The Fanboy, episode 98. Hi, everybody. Buddy Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 98 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? I'm sorry, I'm laughing because I'm, I'm doing this so quietly, but uh, here's the deal. I'm recording this while my family's asleep down the hall. I'm recording this the night before, as opposed to on Friday morning like I typically do, because uh, Friday, well, my Friday got a little remixed. But I, I wanted to be sure to get you an episode this week. Um, so I, let's give you an episode this week. So uh, right, right, right off the top, I want to talk about these Batman rumors that have hit. Because, you know, um, Umberto El Mayimbe Gonzalez uh, tweeted out that both Robert Pattinson and Nicholas Holt are having screen tests and uh, it's probably going to involve the full costume and bada-bing. So that got a bunch of people talking. And then from that came kind of like a splinter off of other rumors. And, you know, there's, there's a couple of common threads. And honestly, I don't know which one I believe. I usually try to, like, listen to all the rumors and sift through them and then try to figure out what I think is most likely. You know, what is the central kernel of truth that seems to run between them or seems to connect them? And, you know, I, I, I don't know where I'm landing, but here are a couple of things I've heard, and you can just munch on that for a little bit, all right? So one that I heard is that our boy Army Hammer, now stop, don't roll your eyes, just hear me out here, According to someone, Army Hammer is indeed the studio's favorite, which is something that was, you know, I was told months ago. So Hammer is the studio's favorite still, but Reeves actually wants Holt. And it doesn't look like Hammer is going to get it, despite the studio's endorsement, because at the end of the day, when all said and done, Reeves gets final say. So that's what I heard from one person, all right? And this is a person with a pretty good track record with me, so I kind of, you know, I, I pay attention. When they come knocking and they have something to share, you know, I, I listen. And But, you know, I take everything with a grain of salt because, like, I've been telling you guys for weeks, you never really know where someone's coming from. You never really know, like, if, if there's an agenda at play. And, you know, there's been a lot of weird misinformation. There's a lot of weirdness going on with this Batman movie. I mean, let, let's, let, let's, let's be honest here. You know, look what happened with Variety. They, you know, they announced it two weeks ago as if it's a done deal. And we're talking about Variety. All right, and yes, they, you know, they they included the same caveat I did about he hasn't signed yet. But you know, when Variety says that someone is in final talks or is in talks, you know that means okay, so this person is playing that role. You know, nine times out of ten, you can take that straight to the bank. And yet, everyone else, you know, you got Deadline, you got the Hollywood Reporter, now you got the Rap saying that not only has it not 
been set yet, but they're still screen testing Nicholas Holt. So therefore, Robert Pattinson is not like a lock. So that means that Variety got some faulty info too. Like there's a lot of, in other words, there's a lot of weirdness coming from this Batman production. A lot of weird, wacky rumors floating around, and it gets a little, it gets to be a little much, honestly. But, you know, so that's why, you know, I, I take everything with a grain of salt, so I strongly suggest you do too. You know, we're just having fun. I'm just sharing you some fun things I heard, and it's just, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Or I'm, I'm pondering, trying to figure out what, is the truth what is the central truth here okay but okay so one of the rumors was the one i just said that hammers the studio fave but reeves favors holt and at the end of the day it you know reeves is going to get his guy all right which you know, according to this person is holt and someone else i spoke to who also knows their stuff and is another one of those people who when they speak i definitely pay attention and they said that well there's a faction at Warner Brothers that likes Army Hammer, but he is very whatever about it. And it's Robert Pattinson's it's Robert Pattinson's gig if he wants it. So that's what this other person says. So it's funny because, you know, one person says Holt seems to be the one who who's gonna get it. That's who Reeves wants. But then this other person says, no, it's gonna be Pattinson. Then, you know, and at this point, it's in it's in his camp because Hammer, quote unquote, is very whatever about it, and that you know that that says something to me, because remember in my original report back in February, you know one of the things that I wrote about, one of the things that I'd heard, was that at this point, you know they're hammering out the logistics, they're getting all the deals, and they're getting everything in place, they're talking it all out. And that essentially the job is his if he wants it. So to now hear he's very whatever about it, that tells me, oh, well, I guess he just didn't want it. I guess maybe when they finally got down to the nitty gritty of what it was all going to involve, maybe just the mere fact that he got hounded by all those questions and, you know, or maybe just like he already kind of got a taste of what it's like to kind of have this Batman thing lingering over everything you do, you know? And it's like, I wonder if he just, he's just, he could take or leave it. So that's ultimately what happened there. You know, I don't know. But I just, I found that line interesting that, you know, the, yes, there are people at Warner Brothers who, you know, they're, they're big on the Army Hammer bandwagon, but it's the actor himself who's just kind of like, eh. So, you know, like, okay, well, that's, that's one way to look at it. But anyway, you slice it, you know, so the, the, these are the different rumors I've heard. And at the end of the day, you know, like, it's exciting to try to ponder and it's exciting to try to figure it out. And I'm going to try to, you know, distill these, these things that are bouncing around tonight into something. But at the end of the day, I'm just, you know, I'm happy to find out whenever they're ready to tell us, you know? I still have that weird little thing in the back pocket of mine where I feel like all these decisions have actually been made already and that we're getting the, the, the you know, that there's a lot of misdirection going on right now because I don't for a second believe that Reeves doesn't already know who his Batman is. I don't for a second believe that. So, you know, I, I you know, I, I have all kinds of interesting feelings and theories and it's just so funny to me that, you know, 
this production of Batman, if you think about it beginning during the Ben Affleck era, there's just been so much to talk about. There's just, it's been like every, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And when this movie comes out, I almost feel bad for it because no matter, it could be the next, you know, Godfather. And it's not going to matter because it, it's going to fall on, you know, compared to all of the hype and all of the anxiety and all of the tension and drama that led to it finally arriving. You know, it's going to feel you know insignificant in front of all of that. I mean, I'm kidding. You know, of course, I, I'm sure if it's amazing, it's going to be amazing. And no one's going to care about the long and winding road it took to get there. But it's just amazing to me. I don't know that I've ever followed a movie and definitely never reported on one that's had as many, like, insane weird twists and turns and ups and downs and narratives and counter narratives and misinformation and like I'm just you know this is gonna be one heck of a ride following this movie for another two years by the way because that's always like you know everyone needs to remember that yes we do nothing but talk about Batman it feels like every other week but there's not even a Batman movie coming soon there's not one coming this summer, not coming by the winter time, not coming by next summer, not coming by that winter time. No, this is coming out in June of 2021, and here we are obsessing about this stuff already. It's, um, I mean, listen, it's, we, we live in a funny time, and being a fan is, uh, it's a lot of fun, it's a lot of fun. It really is. I know I've, I've, I've been a little doom and gloom lately because, you know, it, it kind of stopped being fun for me there a little while ago. But, you know, I'm getting back into the swing of things, just kind of like pursuing the things that I love and want and talking about the things that speak to me and running the website in a way that feels a little more realistic, a little more genuine, a little more just here are the personalities of a diverse group of fans. And we want you to hear us, and we want you to feel heard, and we want you to be in on the conversation. We are Revenge of the Fans. Like, I'm so proud of, of what we've done so far, but also of like what we're starting to do now. We're going to pivot a little bit, and I'm excited to kind of like share that with you. But, you know, we're still in the early stages, but we, you know, we, we had a good team meeting, and things are subtly changing already, and I'm very excited about that. And... You know, being a fan, you know, when you disconnect from the Twitter, like I was talking about last week, when you kind of get away from the hive for a while, and, you know, when you just kind of realize how trivial a lot of the stuff that, you know, we stress out about online, or all the controversies, or all the, you know, the flame wars that take place, or who are we piling on this time, you know, when you when you take a, a lot of time away from that, and... It's funny. I'm going to I'm going to reference this thing for like the third straight week and you guys are going to kill me or these people are going to have to cut me a royalty check. But <laughs> the Empire podcast with Christopher McQuarrie. I'm bringing it up again. I'm sorry, but you really got to go listen to it. Because I'm telling you, the combination of stepping away from the social media and listening to Christopher McQuarrie speak so refreshingly 
about the filmmaking process and understanding that us down here in the trenches chasing headlines, we are clueless to the fact that so much changes on a, on a dime on the productions of these movies. I mean, if you listen to the spoiler podcast for Mission Impossible Fallout, which is what they're talking about, if you listen to that, It'll astound you what this big budget blockbuster starring the most famous man on the planet, Tom Cruise, in a franchise that's over 20 years old, a, a sacred cow in the Hollywood, you know, in the Hollywood, you know, listen, it, 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 it's a franchise industry, right? And in terms of in a franchise industry, Mission Impossible is an unbelievable gift, you know, it, it's... It's a shining example of what they can do if they do it right. And, you know, <laughs> I got lost there for a second. I'm just excited. Um, to hear, to, yeah, on a movie of that magnitude, to hear how many things would change day to day and how many, like, casting decisions or how many, you know, just how many things went uh, so many number of ways at such random points in time that it makes you realize that trying to like, you know, report on anything as if it's set in stone is just silly. It's just silly, you know? And I'm telling you, it, it, listening to that and stepping away from, from the social media for a little bit, it was just that one-two punch made me even realize now, even when I do get back on Twitter for a couple hours, you know, I see some of the stuff that people are getting bent out of shape about, or I see the types of rumors floating around, and now I just kind of like float above it a little bit, and I'm like, oh, that's cute. Oh, they're getting upset about this thing that's probably never going to happen. Or, oh, poor thing, they're getting excited about a thing that sound, it's probably unlikely. You know, it's a, you know it, it, when you realize that these conversations, it's just, we're just having, it, this is basically fun and games. We're, we're, uh, we're, we're, uh, there's a lot of guesswork in, in, that's going into how the industry's covered, and we're, you know people are doing their best to give you good stories, but you know these things are very unpredictable, and it's 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 just you know it's it makes it all kind of cute and less uh, soul draining as it had been becoming there for a little while, because um, look at the end of the day. With all of this stuff that we obsess about, what do we want? What do we want? We want good movies, right? We want nice escapes. We want to be able to sit there in the theater, have the lights dim, and get kind of taken away for a little while. That's what we want. You know, and Alfred Hitchcock talks about the dream state, and Macquarie brought up the dream state, and that it's really stuck with me because it works on a, on a number of levels when you think about a film trying to kind of lull you into a comfort zone and kind of bring you into a kind of a dream state so that you're here with us in this story and for these two hours, this is all that matters to you. And anything that's going to pull you out of that is a bad thing. And Macquarie brought up this interesting example. When he was talking about how to introduce Michelle Monaghan's character back in Mission Impossible Fallout. I'm sorry, this is going to be a little spoilerish if you haven't seen the film yet. You know, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe pause and come back. I don't know. But either way, I mean, it's, not, it's nothing that's going to make or break the movie for you. But 
when he was talking about how to reintroduce Michelle Monaghan's character, who was, you know, Ethan Hunt's love interest in Mission Impossible 3 and has, has made a couple of fleeting appearances, but is not really part of these movies anymore in any real solid way. And to Macquarie, the movie needs to be able to stand on its own. It needs to be able to you know, live and breathe in its own air and, and not require any prior viewership to appreciate. So there was one idea pitched that would have just kind of like had her show up out of nowhere. And he knew he couldn't go that way. And the reason why was because he didn't want the audience to have to step out of the movie for a second and try to remember, oh, that's right, who is that? Who did she play? Oh, that's right, she did the... Th you know what I mean? Like he, he was thinking about the audience member's experience. He was thinking, I can't do anything that lets them drop out and have to try and remember anything. So then he purposely added another scene earlier in the film where she's like spoken of and I think glimpsed or something. I have, I've only seen the film once. But he basically did something that sets up who she is in the story so that when we do see her, bam, it lands and... You know, on top of that, it's such a short scene. It's a in a very short scene. He has to convey a lot. And by the way, even the logistics of filming that scene and the time constraints they were under—I mean, it adds a whole other level of tension to like even thinking about that scene and watching it again. But you know, they had to achieve a lot in a very little amount of time in a very sort of emotionally crucial part of that film's third act. And. He was so dialed in on the audience's experience of it and not wanting to pull them out of the dream state that he knew that he had to bring her up earlier so that no one in the audience had to go like, huh, who's that? Because if they did that, they were going to miss the next 40 seconds, which were going to be absolutely vital. And I have such respect for that. I have such respect for, for the effort that goes into trying to pull the audience into that little world. And, and that's why, like, yeah, I'm hard to watch movies around. Because if anyone starts talking, if anyone does the thing where instead of whispering, they just speak low. By the way, if you're one of those people, I want to find you and talk to you for a little while. Because, you know, speaking low with a voice is not whispering. So anyway... I can be a little hard <laughs> to watch movies around because if anyone starts talking, if anyone does something that's like distracting, I want to just like rip their heads off. I, you know, and, and it, and it's, it, it's, it's primarily because I'm trying to live in this space right now. I'm trying to like, just, you know, disappear into this world. I want to feel totally locked into the confines of what this story is trying to tell me. I want to be within this world. And anything that's going to pull me out of that world, you know, I instantly just want to destroy. And, you know, it got me thinking about, you know, that's what happens. Like, okay, the fact that each film pulls you into a dream state 
It does that by laying down its own foundations, its own rules. This is the tone we are. This is the type of world these characters are populated in. These are what our characters talk like. This is what happens here. Oh, this is realistic, or this is magical, or this is fantastical. You know, they, the, each film kind of, you know, it, it's quietly telling you, you know, it's quietly pulling you into its world, establishing its own set of rules and boundaries within them within this dream state. And I think what happens where people lose it is when something in a film pulls them out of it. You know, talking about that thing we were just saying, like with Macquarie and not wanting them to have to think about the actor or not to have to, you know, get you think about something in a technical sense. Anytime a film makes you have to, like it calls attention to itself, or makes you have to go and think about like, oh God, that CG looked really ugly. Or, oh, well, who is that actor? Do, am I supposed to know who that is? Or what is this a reference to? I don't know what the, I don't know where that came from. Is this, this is part two of something. Did I, uh-oh. You know, anything in a movie that suddenly just makes you like, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? That is what, you know, th th that is what makes or breaks. That is the big difference maker in what makes a good movie and what makes a bad movie. And that's obvious. But what's less obvious is, is things like what my friend Nick Zednick said over on Twitter. Uh, he was talking about, you know, why is it that people are so okay with the level of destruction in Godzilla, in a Godzilla or movies like it, but then, you know, criticism gets levied at, you know, DCEU movies like Man of Steel for their destruction or whatever, you know. And I promised Nick that I would be addressing that this month. And you know what? Here's kind of a perfect place to talk about it. Because as I was talking about a few minutes ago, it's about the rules. It's about the world that you're establishing with your film. And each film is different. Each film has its own particular set of rules, whether you realize it or not. You know, the film is sort of, you know, telling you what it is. It is quietly conveying certain things to you about its world so that you can understand things, so that you can follow as we go from point A to point B. Or maybe it's one of those movies that's told out of sequence that we're going from point B to point F to point M. Like, whatever it is, the film's rhythm is, you know, the, the, the movie's constantly trying to put you into its zone, into its rhythm. And when you look at a film like a kaiju movie, when you look at Godzilla, when you look at Pacific Rim, those films, they don't, you know, we already know inherently they're not based in any kind of reality. And that, especially like in Pacific Rim, where it's very sort of cartoonish characters and you got Ron Perlman running around in weird costumes and Charlie Day squealing at stuff. Like, that's why when you're watching the, the big monsters fighting the giant Megazords or whatever you want to call them, the, 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 the Jaegers, I have no idea. But, you know, when you're watching that, you're not worrying about the buildings they're demolishing because it's, it's, it's a cartoony world. It's a phony world. It's not one where we're supposed to be worried about the civilians. It's not one where the real world is anything that's even remotely on our minds.
You know what I mean? So that's, you know, that, that it's all about the rules that are established. The rules in a movie like that are inherently different. Right off the bat, you, you as soon as those credits start to roll, you know I'm here to watch a, 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 a lizard the size of a skyscraper come out of the ocean and wrestle some other crazy thing. This is going to be an insanely wild thing and the stakes are going to be insane and I just got to enjoy it. I, I I can't worry about little silly insignificant things. I'm here to watch two monsters destroy each other. You know, so right off the bat, you the audience member are in a comfort zone already. And that's why it doesn't call your attention. It doesn't pull you out of it when you see these things. But in a movie like Man of Steel, and I'm not, and by the way, I have a ton of respect for Man of Steel, and I actually have big plans for Man of Steel that I'll be unveiling uh, soon. Soon. Uh, I've got a couple things up my sleeve because that film is tremendously important to me in ways that I'm not sure many of you realize. And a lot of you, you know, get really hung up on the fact that I'm kind of hard on that movie. And you can totally miss the point of the fact that, like, I'm hard on it because I, I wanted to love it. And I could love it. And I'm going to watch it again and give it its best chance to try to win me over. And that's part of what I'm going to talk about in a couple days when I tell you what I want to do for Man of Steel. But, um... Coming from the place of someone who feels that way, who has a complicated relationship with Man of Steel, just hear me out. The reason why the destruction in Man of Steel, is it's like apples and oranges with the type of destruction that we saw with Godzilla or Pacific Rim or those kinds of movies, is because Man of Steel... You know, it was going for sort of hyper-realism. I know that's laughable, right? Because, oh, you went in expecting to see a man fly with a little red cape. What do you mean, hyper-realism? But, you know, aesthetically speaking, after Krypton, you know, Snyder worked really hard to make this world seem very realistic. To make it basically, you know, to kind of make the underlying question or the underlying subtext of this whole film the idea of what would happen if Superman really existed? How would the world realistically respond to him? You know, and this was a very realistic take. Everything about it was kind of like posing that question. Superman set within a real world. You know, how would this play out? How would they really view him? And, you know, it asked some really thought-provoking questions. And I went in there wanting to, like, you know, buy into that. I'm all like, yeah, this is really cool. I like seeing the idea of the Superman mythology explored as if it were real, you know, and there have been studies done or, you know, a lot of like film school junkies are good at breaking down Snyder's cinema, you know, cinematography and how he shot certain things. But, you know, they've pointed out that he almost shot the, the, a lot of the, the Smallville stuff. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's set on earth is shot almost documentary style with things that are like a little out of blur, you know, a little out of focus, a little handheld quality. You know, he was going for something that felt real. He wanted you to feel the authenticity of this world. And that's amazing. And I'm loving that. And that's why when you pull me out of it, when I saw something that now, oh, this is now phony baloney, this, this was like strike one for me. 
And we're not even talking about the destruction yet, by the way. I know this is a bit, this is kind of a tangent, but it all ties in because it's about that moment where you get pulled out of it, okay? So through all of the beginning of Man of Steel, I am hooked, line, and sinker. I'm obsessed with Krypton. I'm obsessed with sort of how they're presenting Clark as this lonely man who's on the, you know, who's kind of out finding himself and he's saving people along the way and, and he just can't seem to help himself. No matter what Jonathan tells him to keep a secret, he just, he can't help himself. I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself like actively falling in love with this new interpretation of the character and the, and, and the way and, and the world in which it's set in. And, you know, and, and remember, we're, and we know that he's trying to keep a low profile. You know, he's wearing, you know, he's, he's a fisherman. He's this, he's that. He's a waiter. He's a busboy. You know, he's trying to keep a low profile, right? And he's at the restaurant. And he has that great moment there where he defends the waitress. And the guy dumps the beer on him. And you see where I'm going here. Because this, this moment recently came up. And I, for some reason, it came up in regard to, like, the Captain Marvel thing, and I don't give a crap about anything with that movie, so I'm not here to cast dispersions on that bonus scene they released. I don't care one way or the other. Uh, that movie happened. It's great. It, it existed. But um, I want to talk about this moment with the truck in this context, not in the context of what it means or, or why is it fair to compare it to Captain Marvel or not. Um... I found the moment with the truck troubling, not because it was a betrayal of Superman, not because I don't like a Clark who gets a little spiteful sometimes. You know, that's why I didn't mind it in Superman 2 when, you know, he goes and teaches that guy a lesson at the diner. I like when Clark shows he's got a human heart in there and he's not perfect and he succumbs to, you know, ego and he succumbs to just feeling like, I don't want to feel like a wuss. Like, I like that. So I would have been, like, totally cool if if the shot looked like a massive tree had crushed the center of the thing, or maybe even two trees crushed down and just fell. And it would look like some sort of freak accident. And us, the audience, we would get the, you know, the, the, we would give the desired response. We would laugh. The audience would give that same, like, ha-ha, that they do already for the version that's already there. That laugh that tends to happen when, when the guy runs out of the restaurant and sees the crushed truck we would still laugh if it was just a you know two massive trees that crushed it because we know oh boy you pissed off Clark and Clark destroyed your truck we 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 would have reacted the same way had it been that instead the way he you know staged that whatever that was it doesn't look at all like an accident it looks like clearly the truck must have been lifted. Something went through it. Like the physics of it are completely impossible. And I know you're laughing at me or you're scoffing at me because we're like, what are you talking about physics, Mario? We're talking about a place with flying aliens. Like, but yes, that's all well and good. But Clark is the super one, right? We're not trying to call attention to Clark right now, right? We're trying to say that this is a real world and... That would definitely, like, who could who, who could look at pictures of that and not think there are gods in the world? 
because you can't explain what happened to that truck. That's what bothered me about that scene. Not that I thought Clark was too chivalrous to ever wreck some dude's truck. It's that it was in such an over-the-top way that there's, there's no way to explain it. As soon as tow trucks arrive, as soon as everyone takes out their cell phone cameras, who is going to explain how that happened? It was so over-the-top that it just, to me, it was distracting. It pulled me out of like, well, okay, well, what, what are we doing here then? Is this like a realistic sort of setting? Or is this, you know, just another kind of Hollywood blockbuster thing where over-the-top action things happen for no particular reason because we have a lot of money to burn on that CG budget because Warner Brothers used to just give people blank checks. You know, like, is it that kind of movie or is it a thinking man's mature, awesome, grown-up, realistic Superman movie? Because that, to me, told me, okay, this is going to be silly. But meanwhile, the movie's not funny, like, you know, and that's okay, it doesn't have to be funny. But it's like... That sort of over-the-top, inexplicable violence that was conveyed onto the truck, that now, like, there's nothing else that suggests that this movie's supposed to be kind of silly or kind of unrealistic. You know what I mean? The, the only thing so far that's supposed to be far-fetched is that there's an alien, and this, this alien under this sun, for some reason, has some powers. That is the one main conceit, and it's a conceit most people showed up at the theater already willing to overlook. But then they just kind of started piling on more and more things and kind of setting themselves up to fail in a regard, I feel. with you know, I, I, just, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent on Man of Steel right now, but to talk to, to, to Nick's point about why, you know, it almost seems like a double standard. No, it's not a double standard. Because in the third act of Man of Steel, when those buildings are going down in this world that by and large is supposed to be a realistic world, a world where I've been, you know, I haven't had a lot to smile about during the movie, right? You know, it's a, it's a very sort of intense sort of harrowing build to that third act once Zod's forces arrived. It's a very sort of serious thing. And the, and the overall movie is rather intense. The stakes are sort of life and death, and you have a, a hero in conflict. You know, it's not a joyous movie. And again, it does not have to be. But the point is, you know, you, you're, you have me in an anxious state. I'm watching this, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hooked into this idea of, oh my goodness, what if there was an alien invasion in real world, and this was happening over New York, and there's this flying alien none of us know about. Do we trust him? Like, I'm over here getting swept into that. But I'm also, you know, since you've made this so realistic to me, and I'm so dialed in, as soon as I start seeing, like, multiple skyscrapers going down throughout that whole sequence, even before Superman got there, just in general, as soon as I start seeing that, oh, my God, this is like a 9-11 level event, and thousands upon thousands of people are dying. And like by the time we get to that moment where where they're in the big crater, you know, you realize the size of that city, like the, the portion of that city that has now been leveled. I mean, in my, you know, that's the thing. If this was like a silly Pacific Rim, you know, type of movie, 
I wouldn't be thinking about the people. I wouldn't be like, all right, whatever. They got rid of the buildings. Oh, well, big whoop. But in this, in this context of this realistic, more psychological, more complex film that you've set up for me, you've got me thinking about the people. And especially in a Superman movie, you know, there is that sense of like, well, hang on, you know, I, I'm not trying to put Superman in a box here, but during the third act, you know, shouldn't we be seeing him trying his best to like minimize the damage or save the people or, you know, when, when he's there in the big crater and he realizes the enormity of the loss of life, like, is he really just going to kiss Lois and make a joke about kissing an alien? Like, you know, like, to me, the most harrowing part, and I've said this before, and I'm sorry for those of you who've heard me make this observation before, but this is another reason that, you know, Superman's like, okay, let me back up. This is one of the reasons why I'm watching it realistically, and I'm, I'm, I'm dialed in, is that amazing scene with Jenny trapped under the thing, and Perry... And uh, Lombardo, Lombardi, whatever, um, are there trying to save her life. And the tears in her eyes and the resolution in Perry White's face as he realizes he's probably about to die because it looks like a building's about to fall and they're unable to get her out and this is it. Like, you know, the, the movie is very dramatic. You know, this is not some, like, rip-roaring, fun action-adventure movie, which, again, it didn't have to be. But for what this movie was, this movie begged to be taken seriously. Above all else, Man of Steel begged to be taken seriously. And if you're going to beg to be taken seriously, you know, you have to be able to answer the serious questions that your movie answer, that your movie asks. And in this very hyper-realized world that you've set our Kal-El into, you know, thousands upon thousands of people just died on his first day on the job. And the ending of your movie is Clark on a bicycle. And it's like, it doesn't feel like you paid any attention to honoring the insane thing you just depicted. You just had to spend like 45 minutes watching a lot of insanity, a lot of destruction, a lot of people dying, a lot of property destruction, a lot of just like general chaos and people almost dying and people you care about almost dying. And then the, at the end, we're just supposed to be like, oh, okay, you know, welcome to the planet, Clark. Ha <laughs> ha. You know what I mean? Like, that's why... That movie is such a tough pill for me because it's so close. Had they addressed certain things or had they staged things just a little differently, I think you have the greatest Superman movie ever. But as this all relates to the topic at hand, that's why you can't compare the destruction of Man of Steel to the destruction in Godzilla. And it's why people seem harder on the one in Man of Steel than elsewhere is because it's all about the rules you set up as you're luring people into that nice little sweet spot, you know? And some directors are just better than others at keeping you there, keeping you in that zone and not suddenly, you know, in the third act doing something that totally seems to upend what the first two acts were about or what the first two acts are trying to tell you. It's what makes a great filmmaker or what makes a so-so filmmaker.
because so so you know so so filmmaker. No, I, let, actually, let's talk about the great ones. The great ones are thinking along the lines of what we were just talking about. They're thinking about you. They're in the audience with you, and they're thinking, all right, with each shot, with each thing that's happening, is my audience engaged? Am I doing anything that's distracting or gratuitous or just not really serving the story? Am I confusing them? You know, the great filmmakers are able to tell their stories, but they're also able to think about who their audience is. Because that is what a great storyteller does. A, a great storyteller doesn't just stand there and tell you a story. A great storyteller looks you in the eye, looks down at their audience, and they, they, they articulate it in different ways, and they feed off the crowd's energy. If there's oohs, if there's ahs, if there's applause, if there's a gasp. You know, great storytellers there, they have to understand instinctively how to work that crowd how to adjust to their audience's energy. Did, we, did I just lurch you into a situation that's very, very high energy and rigorous and crazy and now you're very out of breath? All right, now I'm going to put a scene in here that's going to allow you to catch your breath for a second. All right, okay, and now there's going to be a laugh here, so now we're going to kind of, okay, now you're, you're feeling good, you're feeling comforted, you're going, oh, and now here's the scary thing again. You know, like the, a great filmmaker is thinking like that. They're thinking about the ride that they're taking you on. They're not simply thinking about, here's cool things. Ooh, I just dropped my phone on the floor. Oh, well. Um, they're, you know, they're not thinking about, here are just a bunch of like cool images and things I want you to figure out. And, you know, here's just, you know, it, it, that's what separates a great filmmaker from a so-so filmmaker. You know, the ones who are only concerned with how do I get from point A to point B and I want to have, you know, the, I'm concerned about the explosions and the action sequences, the, you know, the Michael Bays of the world and, you know, the people who just like, you know, the, the people who just kind of can't seem to make a movie that really connects. But then again, you know, who am I to judge? Because as long as they connect with somebody then that's their audience. You know, not everyone has to make a film for everyone. So you know what, Mario? Shut your mouth. Who are you to judge? Who are you to call anyone a so-so filmmaker? You know, I guess, I guess no one's a so-so filmmaker. As long as they find their audience, and to their audience, they're awesome, then they're awesome filmmakers. I guess who I was trying to talk about is the mainstream ones, the ones who we talk about, who create the popular myths that we're all so obsessed with. You know, the ones who, who make all the, you know, the, the superhero movies and the, 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 the Star Wars movies and all those kinds of things are not even, you know, like, the, the ones who just make the mass entertainment that we all imbibe nowadays that brings everyone together, right? These big mass pop culture unification events that they are. Those filmmakers are the ones who know how to tap into the audience and play them like a fiddle. Then, beneath that, there are many, many subgroups of great filmmakers. And then, listen, I mean, there are some so-so filmmakers, but I'm not here to pass judgment today. So that's why I'm kind of glad I caught myself there, because I was kind of, that was getting a little sanctimonious. I'm all, I'm, you know, for a guy sitting here in his pajamas, who the hell am I to call someone a so-so filmmaker? You know, I'm... <laughs> It's just uh, that, that that felt insincere and ridiculous 
and outlandish of me to pass judgment on anyone who's out there living their dream, doing their thing. And you know, that's one of the things that pisses me off about other bloggers and other podcasters and other people and who do the things that I do and then go on Twitter and act like little jerks to everybody and little know-it-alls and act like they know how certain things are done or how certain things are going to happen and they speak in absolutes. And it's hysterical because, again, you can't speak in absolutes about hardly anything in this industry. But you get these little schmucks who that's just what they do. They go and they try to undermine and they act like they're smarter than you and they act like they're smarter than the filmmakers who they're not even a cockroach on the floor to. And, you know, I just, I have such respect. I have such respect for what these people do and the work that goes into creating these movies and taking us on those rides. That that's why I've, you know, in, in, in many respects, you know, I'm changing things up a little bit. I'm pivoting a little bit. You know, I, I want to move away from like constantly trying to talk about like scoops and rumors all the time. I mean, listen, rumors are rumors and they're fun. And I've got some on this episode. And, you know, listen, I get it. They're fun to talk about. I like talking about them. But I don't want to just be a guy who just covers whatever the latest rumor or news is. You know, this, you know that's what the Revengers was for. You know, I, I launched the Revengers so that that would be where I talk about news and scoops and things in a much more organized fashion. And I'd have some co-anchors there and we could, you know, sift through the news and talk about that stuff together. The fanboy was always meant to be a little bit more personal, a little bit more just, you know, my experience being the passionate fanboy that I am, being this person who loves things so completely that he gets lost in them and can talk about them for hours and not feel an ounce of shame when it's over and he's bleary-eyed and exhausted in the morning because he spent hours talking movies with people he loves. So that's what this podcast is. It's about me being a fan. I'm a fanboy. And, you know, when, when it comes to the topics I want to talk about on the show, you know, I want to open up the format. I want to have, I want to feel a sense of freedom. And, you know, not that I don't, but, you know, I get feedback from you guys sometimes. And I kind of feel like, you know, some of you only want me for one type of thing. And I guess for those of you who only want me for, for news and, and rumor scoop stuff, uh, I want you to start listening to the Revengers podcast because that is where I'll be bringing that type of content. But for this show, for the fanboy, this is a much more conversational piece. This is a much more personal, just sort of open mic for me to talk about where I'm at and how my love of, of certain characters and certain mythologies and certain mediums and certain art forms bring me so much joy that it, it makes everything all right. It brings rhyme and reason to my world and to my life to have these movies and characters to idolize and these, these Hollywood legends to, to worship. Listen, you know, it's, I, I love it. I do. And, you know, speaking of like bringing rhyme and reason to things, 
and you know and and the dream state and that whole concept of that i think you know when you're watching a movie one of the things that pulls you out you know the things that we call plot holes the things that like don't add up you know the the, the things that that you know really sort of determine you know whether or not you like the movie you know are the things that pull you in particular out of the movie if there, it's all about your threshold for how many of those things you can stand, or how you know how many of those things happen for you. You know, at the end of the day, some of us, you know, for some of us, it's very easy for us to get pulled out for little things. It's just like, oh, what was that? Ooh, that was a bad bit of dialogue, or ooh, that was a weird cut, or what? You know, for some of us, us nitpicky people, you know. It's it's very easy for us to suddenly get pulled out, and as soon as you're out of the dream state, bam, your your overall impression of the film drops down substantially, you know, and your overall willingness to buy back into what they're selling you suddenly goes down because now it's like, oh, all right, well things were running very smoothly until you totally threw that lazy, sloppy bit of whatever that was in there. So now I'm going to apprehensively give you a shot again. But now, you know, that first cut is the deepest. And, you know, when it comes to these long-standing franchises that are on their, like, you know, 80th sequel by now, you know, people get very precious about the canon. And, and a lot of times they do it, like, retroactively. Where like people will watch a movie and they'll enjoy the movie, but then they'll go home and they'll research it, and then they'll be like, "Oh, wait a minute, but this contradicted that, and the canon, the canon, the canon." But you know what? At the end of the day, if while you were watching it, it didn't pull you out, at the end of the day, if it worked and it built towards the conclusion and you had a good time. Then you can't go and now de- you know demote your feelings from um, about that movie because of some canon hiccup or because this didn't connect to something that happened seven movies ago or this like you know people get really kind of silly and granular with the way that they analyze movies nowadays and that's why when I think about this stuff like yes we all want things to make sense. We all want things to be like all worked out. We want to feel like when we're in this magical place watching these movies while we're in while we're within that zone, we want to feel like everything makes sense since you know Lord knows everywhere else in life things aren't making that, all that much sense all the time. So while we're in there, we want things to make sense. And then you know these canon things come up and for some of us it pulls us out. Or for some of us, it becomes a thing in hindsight. And for my money now, this is where I officially land on that issue, on the issue of whether or not canon is above all else, my answer is unequivocally not. Because at the end of the day, canon doesn't matter if the story is better another way. If there's something in the canon that a filmmaker can't do or a writer cannot write now because, you know, somebody's going to go, oh, no, this contradicted something. 
you know, if, if, if they can't write something better now because of something insignificant that you didn't even notice the first time around, I mean, you know, it's just, it, it's a ridiculous idea. And that's just something that dawned on me this week, too. And in, in, in thinking about, in general, just the idea of the importance, the, the, the responsibility a filmmaker has to, to you know, try to, their best to lull us into that place, and the responsibility of the audience member to not allow themselves to get too easily distracted about any little thing. These movies are miracles that they worked out at all. You know, half the job of directing a movie is just, you know, putting out fires and solving problems. The fact that you got a watchable movie is a miracle. So don't nitpick yourself out of a great time. You know, so there's a responsibility on both ends of the equation here. And I kind of love seeing and embracing that now. And, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun being a fan again. And, you know, I, I want to celebrate it. That's what this is. Revenge of the Fans, this whole endeavor is just about let's have fun being fans again. Let's talk about the stuff that matters the most to us. And yeah, let's get heated and let's talk about it, but let's not be jerks to one another. I'm so tired of seeing people be jerks to one another. I just, you know, I, I want our place to not be about that. And I've, 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 I've surrounded myself by a bunch of wonderful non-jerks. You know, I'm, you know, I'm so proud of, uh, of my people. But um, I, think, uh, I think that's kind of all I have to say today uh, in, a, in a traditional sense. In a traditional sense. In terms of for, for the content that most of you are used to listening to, this is kind of where that ends today. But... There's more show. If you look at the running time on the episode, there's more show. Because before I recorded this episode, which by the way, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get you an episode this week. And I was literally like, I was getting ready to go to bed. And I'm setting the coffee maker. And I find myself going off on like, on a, on a rant in my head about, wrestling about AEW and I'm like oh man I want to record I want to I want to do this on the show in the morning if I if I could find the time but I'm like oh I'm not gonna find the time so earlier tonight what I did was I was planning to just sit down and record a wrestling rant and tack it on to the end of the episode that I was going to record in the morning but it was you know, going to be a, a very tall order for me to pull it off in the morning. So what ultimately happened was I did everything backwards. You know, I did, I did my wrestling rant already. And then I was in such a mood already, in such a vibe. I said, you know what? Screw it. I'll just record the rest of the episode now and then move the wrestling talk to the end. So now you know how this uh, episode 98, which almost didn't happen, came together. Uh, nice sort of spur of the moment thing in a way. You know, it's funny because I knew I had things I wanted to talk about. I just didn't think I was going to find the time or the energy to do it. But here you go. You know, I was, because you know what it is? I was watching AEW leading up to bed. I was watching Double or Nothing leading up to bed. And I just, 
I couldn't stop thinking about the things that were exciting me about it, and that gave birth to episode 98. So <laughs> I guess you could say that episode 98 of The Fanboy was brought to you by AEW. Are you all in? I don't know. Is that still their thing? I don't know. Either way, um, for those of you who are not wrestling fans, uh, you are more than welcome to tune on out from this point, because from this point forward, I'm going to be uh, transitioning over into my uh, spur of the moment, off the cuff, I thought I was going to bed in five minutes, <laughs> wrestling rant. And um, if you enjoyed the show, please, you know, tell your friends, tell your friends, go and leave us a review on the Apple podcast over there. And um, that's it. Without further ado, let's talk some wrestling. Are you ready? So the enormity of the genius that I see at play here with AEW and how all elite wrestling is coming together, it's, it, it's a little bit, um, I don't know, it, 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 it's amazing to see the simplicity of it all. And if I'm reading between the lines correctly, and I'm, I'm connecting the right dots, Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks and this whole brain trust, this, this, this opening sort of, you know, whoever's calling the shots here for this first wave of AEW, these people are geniuses. So I was thinking about things over the weekend. I was kind of noticing little things. And, you know, bear with me. You know, with Double or Nothing taking place in Vegas at the MGM, and, it, you know, it, it, it calls to mind... You know, when when the WWF went there and they had WrestleMania, WrestleMania 9 was there at Caesars Palace. And Vegas is a very, you know, bizarre place to hold a wrestling pay-per-view, you know, because it's filled with tourists. And you don't have all, you know, in terms of who comes in there, they're not necessarily hardcore wrestling fans. They're tourists who are there just to see what's happening in Las Vegas. And somehow they got tickets on a, on a discount through their hotel. And bam, they're there watching your wrestling show. So Vegas is a peculiar place. And in the case of like WrestleMania, you know, people felt like it hurt that show because, you know, WrestleMania is the biggest show of the year. It's the, it's the Super Bowl of professional wrestling. And to have a crowd that's anything less than absolutely dialed in and super passionate, to have anything less than that, you know, it kind of cheapens the whole thing. And unfortunately, that's what happened. You know, at, 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 that, at that WrestleMania 9, you know, not only was it outdoors at Caesars Palace, which is always a nightmare because the cheers go up into the sky instead of, you know, starting to bellow off the ceiling and reverberate and make that deafening amazingness that they're supposed to do, you know? So the cheering goes up into the sky and, you know, a good portion of your crowd are people who've never seen wrestling or are just here out of bemusement and curiosity to see, all right, what the hell's this all about? You know, and, you know, in, in the case of WrestleMania, it hurt it. Vegas hurt it. But for AEW, it was a stroke of genius because right now they're starting that like, this was their first show for all intents and purposes. This is their first show because, yes, All In was like the unofficial launch. But that, that you know, that's still that was a one off. That was the prequel. This is the actual movie now. This is where the story really begins and with that being said you know 
who better to have in the audience than a fresh set of eyes to kind of let them, you know, they're going to respond the way they're going to respond organically. There are no storylines for them to have followed. There is no history for them to respect. There is no loyalty to any one particular character yet for them to cling to. These are fresh eyes. So having this show in Vegas where you're going to have a combination of super hardcore wrestling fans who are dis- who are, you know, excited beyond belief to support the launch of this exciting new federation, but you're also going to have a lot of tourists and a lot of fresh eyes there who are going to actually react in a way that may help push you in the right direction. You know, unlike with WWF when WrestleMania was there and the reactions were sort of counterintuitive to the angles that they were booking, here there are no angles, so it doesn't matter how they react as long as they react. And of course, then you have to deliver, you have to give them a great show. And my God, I'm in the, I, I'm most of the way through Double or Nothing right now, and I had to pause just to record this because these guys are hitting it out of the park. And I'm so impressed. And, and and with the Vegas thing too, you know, when I was listening to something to wrestle with Bruce with Bruce Pritchard, um, he was talking about how one of the one of the good things about the Vegas WrestleMania was that they had a lot of fat cats there. They had a lot of you know, it helped their relationships with the hotels to bring all these like high priced VIP types to the boxes and the place was filled with money and you know it just he brought that up as one of the cool ancillary things of doing it there and you know when I think about what what they did here with AEW you gotta imagine that Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks and that that whole crew I bet you they were also whining and dining these these wealthy wealthy people who were getting free box seats from their luxury hotels to this premier wrestling event. So you have these people with all of this disposable income who are going to come and get box seats to your to your show and who better than to try to, you know, tap on their shoulder to try to get them to be a sponsor, to try to get them to invest, to be like, "Hey, you see this crowd? You feel this energy?" You see what's going on out there in the ring? How about you try to get in on this from the ground level, from the ground up? And if anyone on that staff thought of approaching it that way, this thing is going to, you know, people are going to look back on this launch pad of AEW and it's it's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be an astronomical leap because so many of the things that they've done here they've set themselves up for success. They've set themselves up they've set themselves up for success and it's so exciting to see that. You know because like with TNA it was like I I wanted them to succeed. I never watched any of the shows, but I wanted them to succeed and eventually get big enough so that I could start following them. I mean, I wasn't going to do the whole $10 a week pay-per-view thing like are you nuts you know and it was it was just doomed to fail you know it was it was WCW 2.0 with a bunch of has-beens and never wases and oh it was just a mess so you know it's like to, to, to watch that from that from the sidelines you know start off on such shaky ground and then just collapse and then once in a while seem interesting and then collapse again and then once a little and then gone you know, I mean, they're still around, so, you know, all the power to them. But 
to like to now have such a completely different experience with AEW to see them like wow every single thing they're doing is working every single thing they're doing feels right and feels authentic and feels like wow why didn't I think this could happen? Because, you know, I feel like a lot of us felt defeated in that regard. We felt like, that's it, you know, there's never going to be another proper challenger to WWE. You know, I think we all thought it might be TNA Impact, and when that didn't, I feel like a lot of us just kind of said, all right, that's it. It's going to be WWE as the only mainstream, big, huge, you know, wrestling corporation. And then it'll be a bunch of cool indies that you follow in, the, you know, in a more underground sort of way. And at least that's how I view it. You know, Maybe they're more mainstream than I realize. But to me, wrestling is still WWE and then all those other companies that I hear have really cool stuff. And for this to like instantly launch and already seem like it's, it's a firm number two and way above the others... It's just, it's super exciting. It's super exciting. And I'm telling you, for me, I wish there had been a camera on my face when they did the reveal of AEW on TNT with the two logos together. Wrestling's returning to Turner. Like, I, my, I, like, most of my face disappeared for a little while and then I had to like run around and find all of the individual pieces and get them back on and then finally utter some words it was like the if that's not a huge shot over the bow I don't know what is that's that's uh, that's we're coming for you that's we're coming for you that's not no this isn't some cute little indie that oh look at the little engine that could no this is we are coming we want to be the number one company we want to be in the conversation we want to be out there where everyone can see us we're coming to TNT where your number one competitor once lived where there's this rich rich lineage of wrestling programming on TNT it goes back to TBS and the Turner Networks and the NWA, I mean, they, when Cody Rhodes then followed up that announcement with that, you know, basically just, you know, he delivered a promo. He delivered it in a very in a conversational way, but when he delivered that very authentic promo about what it means to be, you know, bringing wrestling back to TNT and sort of reactivating that lineage and name-dropping Dustin Rhodes and leaning into that legacy. I love that overall about this entire thing so far. The leaning into the Rhodes family legacy. That branding that they've got going on is like, yes, there are more than one, you know, honorable wrestling families in this industry. You know, there are so many. And to now have a company go, all right, we're going to build ours on the backs of Dusty Rhodes, the American dream, baby. Like, it's so cool. And the TNT thing, I realized too, is also genius. Because in this day and age, Networks like TNT and FX and TBS and uh, I don't know, some other ones I'm blanking out, you know, but a lot of those like, you know, those upper tier, not quite premium, but upper tier, upper echelon cable networks, they love content that they don't really have to spend anything on, anything that sort of self-produces 
they you know that's that that is in their best interest and you see a lot of that on fx you know on fx you know louis ck uh he once was talking about his his deal with them and it's like basically you know i get paid you know i i very little and that's by design so that i have full creative control and all I do is then just, I shoot it, I direct it, I edit it, and then I just give it to them, and they air it. You know, and that, that's how I do it. And a lot of networks are kind of leaning, and they, they like that sort of thing now, where you are already a self-enclosed, ready-to-go, packaged bit of entertainment. And that's what AEW is. So for them to go to TNT, that was probably the easiest pitch in the world. Because all they had to do was pitch whoever runs TNT nowadays and say, listen, there's a lot of money being left on the table. Professional wrestling has a much wider audience than you realize. Look at these metrics. Look at this. Look at you. I'm sure if, if they hit them up with just the math of how many wrestling fans are out there and how many of them would be totally reactivated again if there was a proper number two company for WWE to have to compete against. You know, if they could properly convey that and then say, so not only are we going to bring a ton of viewership to your network, but we're going to self-produce the whole thing and we're going to self, we, we, we are our own hype engine. So he basically, you know, we're going to make this super hot product that's going to appeal to a huge untapped audience. And then we're going to bring that entire audience to your network. So it's like if you're TNT, of course you're going to say yes to this. And if you're AEW, there's no network you'd rather be on than TNT because, what if it's, you know, because of the statement that that is. So it's just, you know, I I'm just smiling. I'm just smiling at the way it, it like it, like to watch a plan come together and to watch and like oh and another thing another thing you know another in this in 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 the world of wrestling fandom now podcasts have become hugely important you know with your Bruce Prichard and your Eric Bischoff and your Tony Schiavone and your you know these huge wrestling podcasts are sort of what's feeding a lot of the uh, of the undercurrent of wrestling fandom that is frustrated with WWE and is so ready to embrace AEW so podcasts are a big deal right and landing like big monumental interviews on a podcast that's also like a big deal. That's something, you know, like the entire industry will pay attention to it. They want to hear that pipe bomb, you know? And what did they do? What did they do? They concluded their super well-executed pay-per-view with the shocking debut of John Moxley, formerly Dean Ambrose of WWE, who was just on their network a month ago and given this huge, grand send-off into the unknown. And now here he is attacking Chris Jericho and then tossing Kenny Omega off part of the set. You know, it was a huge thing. So then what happens next? Oh, that's right. Chris Jericho sits down with him for the big tell-all interview where they take down WWE and they, you know, they, they talk about his transition to AEW and what this is going to be. I mean, 
this has been so well orchestrated. Every little bit of this, all these bullet points they're hitting of slowly just checking every box on their way towards being extremely relevant. It's just like my hat's off to Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks and that, uh, I forget his name, Tony something. He seems to be like the money guy. I don't want to demean his role, but I, you know, that, that's just what I get from what I've learned so far. That They've got this wealthy benefactor, Tony, I don't know the last name. But, you know, this initial crew of people, if this thing takes off the way I think it's gonna, the, they deserve, uh, you know, <laughs> whenever they launch whatever the AEW Hall of Fame looks like in 10 or 15 years, they just better all put themselves in, in instantly as the class of that first year because they've done such a good job creating this thing and making it feel like it matters already. And that just about does it for episode 98 of the Fanboy Podcast. But for those of you who have hung out for this long, uh, I'm going to go ahead and mention something that I forgot to mention sooner. That for those of you who would like to attend uh, the Revenger Watch Party for Spider-Man Far From Home, it'll be taking place on Friday night, July 5th. That's opening night of the movie at the AMC Lincoln Square Theater in Manhattan. Available to all kinds of mass transit. I've already purchased an entire row just for all, anyone, any of our New York area uh, listeners or readers who'd like to come watch it with us. Uh, tickets are super cheap. And uh, you get to come and, and we can watch the movie together and afterward go someplace or whatever we and talk about it and have a little kind of, you know, our own little Revenger roundtable. We're going to get a bunch of the podcast people together. It is my understanding that longtime listener, Mr. Tavo Borrego, someone who's been an amazing supporter of mine and a follower since back in my Latino review days, he's going to be traveling up to New York that weekend specifically to attend the Revenger Watch Party with us and finally meet us in person. So it's going to be a pretty special night. We're going to have a bunch of people on hand a bunch of great group of uh, our Revenger podcast knuckleheads, and I cannot wait for that. So that's going to be taking place Friday night, July 5th. If you'd like me to set aside a ticket for you, uh, email me at mfr at revengeofthefans.com, and uh, we'll talk about what it, you know, about reserving your ticket and all that good stuff. And uh, I hope to see you there. And also, as part of that weekend, I may as well just mention it now. I don't know who really cares about this, but you know what I do? Um, you know, that weekend's going to be pretty special. And the, anyone who wants to be part of this next part of that weekend, you know, it would be an honor for me to, to have you be part of this. But essentially, that weekend is a biggie. Because on July 5th, you know, we're gonna, a bunch of us are going to get together and watch Spider-Man at a, at a movie theater down the block from my high school. And it's going to be a trip to be there with a bunch of amazing people watching, hopefully, an amazing movie. And the next day, Saturday, July 6th, my band is having a huge show in Queens. And we're headlining at a really cool rock club, rock club called Blackthorn 51. And we're also getting to pick some of the acts who are going to you know, play before us. 
And it's going to be a really cool night. It's going to be like a weekend-long party as far as I, the way I look at it. So, and for me, it starts even sooner because my family, we do a big July 4th thing every year. We do a big, it's a big to-do with a barbecue and pool. And then we go to the beach and we watch the fireworks at Jones Beach. And it's a whole thing. So for me, from July 4th through Saturday night when my set is done at around like 1 in the morning when we're done with our one-hour set, it's going to be quite a marathon, but I, you know, yeah, I, I'm going to be on cloud nine. If anyone wants to be there for either of those things, we're doing Spider-Man July 5th, and my band, The Boom Section, is playing in Blackthorn 51 the very next night on July 6th. We're putting together some really cool bands to play ahead of us, and I hope to see some familiar faces there. But everyone, thank you for listening, and as always, until next week, life is chaos. Be kind.